think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 41 of The Boys in Short Pants, the 42nd episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. I'm Etienne Rainbow. And uh, there was a federal budget this week, which uh, tends to be pretty big news. Yeah, Tuesday, big day. It was a big day. You were at work till like 9, something like that? Something like that. Yeah, I was done at a cool 5.30, stuck around for a little bit to hang out, but... Busy boy. Was largely done. It's Biz- a, Busy boy. The privilege of opposition, Etienne, really is. Yeah, without um, a doubt. So, uh, we want to start talking about that. We've got some other things on the docket here for the week, but um, yeah, I think uh, starting with a budget reaction is probably the natural place to start. Uh, Etienne, what is your takeaway overall from the innovation and gender budget, as it's been branded? Woof. I mean, to sum my reaction to the budget up in a couple of sentences, I would say it was fairly unremarkable. Um... I think a lot of the like hard economics got lost in this budget. I, I think observers were right. Um, Andrew Coyne noted that this wasn't much of a budget at all. When you actually look through the document, there was a couple sort of spin financial graphs in the first, you know, 20 pages. Yeah, this is where they put the like macroeconomic analysis portion of it. Yeah, and then you had to you had to really really dig to find much more. Yeah. Than, there was like, Annex 3, which was like the sort of like financial sector data stuff. Finding but, like real GDP growth and yeah. the private sector prediction, like all of that was absolutely buried, nowhere to be found. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, like budgets are marketing documents, so I don't think you can blame I think there's a balance to be found though. Sure. I, I think there's a balance to be found where at the but end I of the day think... this is still a budget it's still yeah. supposed to be a financial document as much did you, did you see the picture um, Michelle Rempel tweeted this but I was laughing about it as well when I found it of, it was showing how some of the programming had turned they were consolidating the programming and it looked like a Tetris oh Tetris yeah no, there was the RDA stuff yeah 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 Tet- Tetris Square 2 we'll come back to that yeah yeah oh ridiculous um, that so, was actually that actually has an interesting ramification which we can discuss I, I think it's worth noting that so uh, none of these observations are unique. Um, the liberals introduced more tax credits. They did not reduce tax credits. It's a shame. Like um, I'm sure the Economist Party is stamping their feet <laughs> in rage right now. I mean, not only the Economist Party, but sort of what they've said. They've doubled down on regional development agencies, which they'd previously been critical of. Um, there I was, think everyone is critical of regional development agencies out of government. There was a couple key areas where they did increase funding, um, notably in uh, indigenous and gender topics but even on with gender the, with I, a big I think, asterisk next to it I'll, i think I'll, they were we'll pretty light and it sort of took more of the nudge-based philosophy yeah sort of the freakonomic approach to one or two different little programs um though I, status I think, of women is becoming a full department we'll see which i mean we'll see what the impact of that ends up being but yeah yeah i, I don't think they really hit anything out of the park no uh from the ndp point of view it's kind of a not good enough budget um, it's, uh, like we talked about indigenous, there's good funding of the CFS program as was ordered by, by the human rights tribunal, but what, what does CFS stand for? Break, child and family break, services. Break down your alphabet soup. Yep. Child and family services, uh, which they've been ordered to, uh, to, you know, close the gap. Uh, however, there was no new or like an insultingly small amount for water, uh, like another hundred million or so, which in when you're looking at a $3.5 billion infrastructure deficit, is not a lot of money. So that is one of the tricky things to do. When any layman reads the budget, um, it's actually written in a very cryptic way. 
in terms of so I, I actually first and foremost I think I would encourage everyone to actually go out and just Google federal budget 2018 download the actual document not the press releases not the spin documents but the document itself yeah I mean it is a uh, spin document <laughs> it but... is but, but better to start there than to go to the high level lines yeah um, and actually flip through it I think like every Canadian should be able to flip through the budget and it's written it's in a very readable. it's written in yeah. a very approachable way but what's hard when it comes to the analysis of the budget well, journalists have to read it so that's is... why they make it very <laughs> But they have the big font and everything. Is sifting through it and distinguishing what money was already promised, what is new spend. Yeah, that's huge. What has already been announced. And, like, because there's nothing a government loves to do than reannounce spending. Yeah. Well, especially our federal government, which is in a very weird position compared to many because it does almost no frontline service delivery compared to many other central governments. Uh, you don't have, like, what the U.S. government has in its food stamps program um like there's just very little service delivery except with veterans and indigenous people those are the two sort of groups of people that receive services directly from the federal government passport holders yes yeah i mean but that in ei (laughs) i guess ei is the major social program but even then that's administered basically at arm's length uh so in that sense it's very it's very. It's not the same level of financial complexity with program spending, which is often where a lot of the details get buried. In the indigenous files, actually, this gets to be quite complicated because you're looking at what gets allocated versus what gets spent, what gets promised, you know, year over year in terms of like new spending. So that stuff actually does get quite complicated. But the federal budget as a whole, because the federal government doesn't really do that much frontline service delivery, is a simpler document to read than comparable documents from, say, the UK government, which is just interesting kind of thing. And I mean, that's one thing that anal- uh, analysts look for anytime you're looking at a budget is what money's being reprofiled, yeah. what money wasn't being spent, what's being sort of moved around to make room for new spending. Yeah. So be it a cut here, a cut there, um, it's sort of important because, let, let's use um, D&D, for instance, a lot of the money... Department that, of National Defense. <laughs> Mr. One, Alphabet Soup. That one's a little, little more obvious. I don't know, um, some people might think Dungeons and Dragons, who knows? <laughs> the money that D&D gets, because a lot of it is for, you know, fighter jets and major procurement projects, it, it continually often gets reprofiled from year to year, so yeah. watching sort of where that money goes is very, very critical. So, to continue on the, the, the sort of, like, NDP response, there was one big thing in there that was sort of looked to be, like, the next big expansion of the welfare state, which was the Liberals' promised study of pharmacare. Which, you know, from from the left-wing point of view, there have been many studies of pharmacare. Almost all of them have concluded that we should basically fold pharmaceutical coverage into the Canada Health Act in some respect, from like the Roman O Commission, the Pharmacare 2020 report, and several others. Uh, This isn't like breaking new ground exactly, but the liberals have promised that they're going to be instituting a a committee led by um, Dr. Dr. Hoskins, the Ontario Liberal Cabinet Minister for Health until... Tuesday. Yeah, so let's let's back up and set the scene here a little bit for this promise and it coming out in the budget. The day before the budget was announced, um, the Hoskin announcement came out actually before the yeah, budget, it did. which sort of turned eyes towards the budget for what would be there in terms of pharmacare. Yeah. So he announced Monday afternoon that he was <coughs> resigning effective immediately as an MLA and well, as a MPP, whatever. A, as an MPP and Minister of Health for Ontario. Yeah, and he was uh, a former Liberal leadership candidate. Uh, provincially, and also long-time MPP, like ten years plus, oversaw the OHIP Plus uh, sort of yeah. uh, program implementation on Ontario. And for those of you not in Ontario, OHIP Plus is basically <coughs> the the pharmacare expansion for people under twenty-five. 
I'm, uh, I messed up. Sorry? I messed up. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's did, fine. Did you get in on that? I did not. No, no. I, I I aged out as basically right when they announced when, it. When it came in, which is super good. Um, yeah. So late that afternoon, um, it was announced at Hoskins the day before the budget was coming effectively to work for PMO. Um, apparently, the provincial liberals were caught wholly off guard by this. Yes. Um, when you have liberals poaching liberals, it's always a good luck. Yes, well, especially they're three months out from an election and in pretty dire straits, uh, PC troubles notwithstanding. And you're losing a popular minister. Well, and that hurts. Popular hurts. Yeah. A, a reasonably popular minister. A not hated minister, I think. Who <laughs> <laughs> had over, overseen but... some of the harder uh, yeah. liberal files. It's it's legendary that health is, in uh, provincial cabinets, the most difficult and thankless uh, portfolio. Because it's just functionally... Not, not enough money. It, it's never enough money. It's it's difficult. Ontario, in particular, seems to be hitting kind of a crisis point. Uh, in that you have like very, very, very full hospitals almost all the time. Uh, and it could probably stand to, to see some more funding. But you are in the unpopular position of administering a very difficult to administer system. Um, you know, granted, you look at other systems, and I, I quite like the Canadian one overall. You know, uh, but yeah, it is it is certainly a large thing to administer. Um, and being health minister is an unpopular job quite a lot of the time. Uh, so that was a surprise. Everyone, I think, a lot of people. Um, the first keyword they s- searched in lockup was likely pharmacare to see mm-hmm. uh, what it was, and what it was was a one-page promise to sort of maybe look into pharmacare. With, yeah, with no funding future. attached to it. With no funding attached to it. So, uh, I mean, okay, let, let's be clear in terms of no funding attached to it. Well, there was no like budget <clears throat> announced for the pharmacare study, which I mean, as a study debatable how much money it actually needs but there you go that was the first thing i was going to say the second thing i was going to say is that um it's perhaps misleading to think of the budget as the full year budget oh yeah totally there are sort of above and below figures yeah um there's a lot of money that the government spends that does not make it into the budget that's they're, why we have supplementary estimates a and b quote unquote below the line yeah um it is sort of unusual for something to be announced in the budget and have uh, no money attached to it but that is not to say that everything in the budget yeah is all the spending yeah it's for, not not it's, the full plan at it, all yeah, yeah a lot a lot of stuff will come out in you know and frankly this will probably just get folded into the pco budget anyway that, so, that's what I was going to say. It's yeah. staffing costs. So yeah. staffing costs are pretty easy to roll in mm-hmm. and very, very flexible as opposed to like major program spending. Sure, sure. So, but it just kind of, I think as a signal goes to show that like this could have been, you know, copy pasted in the day before or something and it would have made no difference. Like the thought process doesn't seem to have been all there. And that said, I think we saw that the next day. What when, happened the next day? What happened the next day? So... The, the coverage on the pharmacare thing was very much that the liberals were exploring a universal pharmacare system on the model that's been recommended by virtually every study of the subject that has come out. Uh, the House of Commons Standing Committee on Health, in fact, was or is on the verge of releasing a report that looked like it was going to be suggesting this, though now they, the liberal members of that committee may be facing <laughs> a lot of pressure to change that. Uh, we will see. Uh, but Morneau, finance minister, walked it back quite a bit the next day in front of the Economic Club of Canada, which is kind of the old money in Ottawa society, basically. One of them, anyway. Uh, not, not even. I don't know that. New money, too? I mean, it's like $20 a ticket. It's yeah. like $50 a ticket. It's whoever wants to go. It's, okay. not, it's not a huge deal. At any it's rate, some cult of, like, economists. Bo- Bohemian Grove. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, it's really not a big deal. So, But at any rate, so he... 
walked it back quite a bit and said they'd be looking at sort of like catastrophic means-tested coverage uh, rather than a sort of universal expansion of the system, uh, which was like, I think, a huge political mistake because what they could have done was what they did on electoral reform and sort of hold out the idea that maybe... We are agnostic until yeah, the committee... It's the mystery box thing, right? Yeah. Like, oh, it could be anything in the mystery box. It could even be universal pharmacare. But then you end... You, it's like a $20 gift certificate to Olive Garden. <laughs> and uh, that's what you get. So uh, look forward to your new uh, Olive Garden gift certificates when they <laughs> they finish up the, uh, the, the commission. I mean, I mean, that is perfectly fair. I think... Um, they, it just seems like they've robbed themselves of a very potent weapon against the NDP. Yes, I think I think they certainly erred um, by immediately sort of crushing. Oh yeah, especially the finance minister. Yeah, um, coming out rather than some of the other ones. It yeah. was sort of interesting to see that it was more no that immediately was putting the brakes on sort of the speculation here. Yes. Well, okay. So then a lot of civil society actors got very upset about this and said that this was a conflict of interest thing. Which I personally have trouble seeing. Hasn't hasn't Morneau divested himself of, like, That's, everything? I mean, okay, like, yes, he has. I think it's not impossible to imagine that, for instance, his father still has significant holdings in the company, so that he does have, like, immediate family. This, this is a reach. It is a reach, I agree. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I, I completely agree that it's a reach. But... I don't think it's incumbent on, like, you know, I think it was um, CLC, uh, National Federation of Nurses Unions, and Canadian Doctors of Medicare to be experts in the Conflict of, Conflict of Interest Act. So, Unlike all of our listeners. Yeah, it's a fair, fair mistake, <laughs> I think, from their part. I, I see where they're coming from, but on the other hand, I'm like, yeah, there's really not a violation of the act here at all in any meaningful way that I can tell as It hasn't written. even been legislation introduced. Yeah. Like, it's not even yeah. remotely no. close to as, as written, there is nothing here. And it wouldn't be his legislation. It would be legislation from the health minister. Yeah, yeah. Like, so it's... I, I have trouble seeing my way there, personally, but, you know, good good on you for being good watchdogs, <laughs> I guess. Uh, you don't want the watchdog that doesn't bark, I guess, is the, is the way to look at that. Um, so that that's Pharmacare. We'll see where that goes. Uh, I think I, my takeaway is that they both handed themselves a very potent weapon to beat on their left and then completely divested themselves of it. So seems foolish, but there you go. Can I just uh, give sort of an MVP highlight to uh, Don Davies? Yes, uh, you absolutely can. He's great. <laughs> yeah. So Don Davies being an NDP MP. Um, the health critic, notably. The, yes, also the health critic, who stood up at the end of question period at some point mid this week and tried to table um, him... I, what, what I would presume would have to be both official languages, the liberal platform from, from 1997. 1997. Yeah. That Asked for unanimous consent and did not receive it, that unfortunately. That promised um, universal pharmacare back then, so yes. he was sort of making the point, and the liberals boot it down as they have the power to. Indeed. Um, but it did serve as a nice little fuck you. <laughs> it was really good. Uh, well, well played, Don Davies. Well played. Uh, the other thing that this budget was sort of noted for was sort of the gender and innovation budget. So... For the last year plus now, um, the whole scientific research community in Canada has kind of been clamoring at the government to implement the recommendations of the Naylor Report, which was the sort of resulting report from the um, sort of independent commission on fundamental science review that they uh, that they implemented. Uh, and it seems like it's kind of a mixed bag in terms of actual delivery and results on this, so to speak. Um 
they've spent a lot more infrastructure than I think anybody sort of foresaw or wanted, but not quite as much on research and programs, which is kind of where people actually wanted the money. So a little bit of a mixed bag there. Uh, honestly, a lot of the stuff in this budget to me was kind of mixed bag. It's like strides in the right direction, followed by not a whole lot of like follow through on the swing uh, to implement it, implementing it properly. Uh, with indigenous stuff, as I mentioned earlier, they, they did quite well in some areas and like total status quo in others. So what was sort of interesting to see was in terms of areas of revenue generation, um, which is always uh, interesting to look at. It, it's basically taxation. What taxes are being tweaked? What loopholes are being changed? Yeah. Which tax expenditures are being removed? Right. The passive investment, I think, was a huge piece that was likely undercovered. Um, so are you talking about the sort of proposed changes they made last year but didn't follow through on, kind of? Correct. Right. And so there was a piece in this budget that everyone was waiting for um, that had to do with the passive investment for corporations. And it was, um, let's say, walk back a fair bit. Yeah, they received a lot of backlash, so. Um, so, that I mean, just from a revenue generation perspective, that was one area where they've lost revenue. Um, they had some language in the budget in relation to how dividends related to banks or something or rather. I, I can't really remember the specifics. I'm, I'm not the finance guru. Um, I don't think either of us are, really. The tax expenditures was one area that I was really keen to watch because they had their commission on tax expenditures, and I think everyone can agree that they are yeah, including, ridiculous. Including front of the show, Jennifer Opson. That is correct. Um, there are some ridiculous areas where tax expenditures are really out of control and need to be reeled back, but instead of cutting any, they were yeah. increased. Well, I mean, one of the ones that they sort of repackaged, renamed, and increased is the Working Tax Benefit, now known as the Canada Worker Benefit. Did you see the um, article about the renaming of that? I did not. Today? Okay, let me tell you this. Um, so the Conservatives actually pushed back on that renaming as I can petty. see why. Yeah. It is a little petty. Well, no, no, no. It's, it's more significant than you think. Um, that it was a tax credit introduced by Jim Flaherty. The late Jim Flaherty. The late Jim Flaherty. And it was an homage to his riding, Whitby. Ah, I see. Working on tax benefit. Yes. I did not know that, actually. Um, I, I didn't know that either, and clearly Morneau did not know that either, because... Or he may have. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> but honestly, I will, knowing Morneau... I will certainly give him the benefit <laughs> of the doubt on this one. Yeah. Um, so the latest little mini-scandal that the Conservatives were being critical of was sort of renaming... Uh, I mean, we talk about mini-scandal. That's pretty mini. Well, mini-scandal. Yeah. I, I use mini in, in the... Most diminutive, (laughs) a nano-scandal, perhaps. Um, Was to say, come on, you you renamed the late Jim Flaherty's tax credit that was an homage to his writing. I think we should... Whoops. My take on this is we should name more things. Something with worker in the title. I think that's that's what I'm about. (laughs) I don't think that's the takeaway here. I think think it is for me. But uh, the working tax benefit is a pretty good program, all things considered. So it's actually not bad to see it expanded. I think everyone can be happy about that. It's, it's It's pretty good. Um, in speaking of tax credits, one of the other things that I'm sure the liberals would like us to promote, uh, I think they indexed the Canada Child Benefit, whatever the hell that thing is being called now, to right. uh, inflation. Okay, another one of their like, idea. reasonable spends. Yeah, um, also a good, relatively good program. Just spitballing now because I, I feel like most people have read you know different bits and bytes about what was in the budget so far. One of the other big pieces was 1.2 billion. Um, don't quote me on the number for protected areas um, over a few years. 
That uh, sounds high, but there was more money. No, it was in the billions. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Well, it, that's it, good. Was, it was a big spend there. It's hard to, like, not... Like, no one can be like, that's that's too much money on that. Like, it's... it's I mean, unless you're talking about, like, a truly ludicrous amount, but... It, I, everyone can get behind that kind of spending. It's it's uh, it's motherhood and apple pie kind of stuff. Not yeah. to say that it's bad, but just it's easy. Yeah, uh, I mean that was one of the bigger spends and bigger takeaways in the budget. Um, so I mean there's a, there's a lot of different little pieces. Um, the budget itself comes in around a little under 400 pages. Um, the cover page of which is worth mentioning yeah. only in passing. In passing. Is sort of kids running in the field, and apparently some reporter asked them at uh, lockup how much the coverage cost, and it was you know a couple hundred bucks. It certainly Good. was not. Oh, uh, of note is on the cover actually there was the logo of GBA Plus to serve as the equality plus growth, uh, strong middle class, uh, and GBA Plus is is I think something not everyone on the right because I think people who know this are wisely taking a step back but people who are not familiar with the history of gba plus and the government of canada are getting very mad online red nude and mad uh about this and gba plus is basically a sort of screening for any kind of like policy or um like it's a level of analysis is applied to virtually everything where basically you just think through the effects of whatever policy you're spending on different like social groups that might be disadvantaged. So it's gender-based analysis plus the plus including like literally everything, uh, which is it's a little capacious for that. Maybe you should just call it like everything-based analysis. I in, don't know. In fact, the woke you... lens. But okay, so but what I was coming to is that GBA plus was actually introduced to the government of Canada under the Conservatives, which is like totally reasonable. It's a good way of doing things. But, and this is why the conservatives have been kind of quiet on that, because they, they own it in a way. Uh, but some people are, are mad online, because it, it sounds like Trudeau virtue signaling, uh, I think is the preferred term. Uh, speak, okay, let me, let me finish on the GBA Plus before mm-hmm. throwing it to a foreign policy piece really quick. Um, on GBA Plus, I would note that to every citizen who's interested, and maybe to buff your resume... You can do the GBA Plus certification of the Government of Canada online. It can take you as little as 10 minutes if you just do the quiz, <laughs> yes. which is not a hard one. Um, and I've seen you know bureaucrats print this out and have it uh, on their cubicles because yeah. everyone is supposed to do it. So I would strongly encourage you to Google it and do the test. Yes. And to see what well, and in fact, GBA Plus training for bureaucrats I looks like. I think it's a bit like that's almost, I think, a downside is that it's basically such a like exercise in box checking that it's almost a joke. Like, I would actually like to see a much more rigorous implementation of it for people who actually do policy development. So that's the thing. I I think there's a balance. Just make them do, like, Sociology 101 or something, but, like, you know, like... I think there's certainly a balance we found here. I think the actual certification that, you know, all civil servants are supposed to get is, like... Kind of a joke. Ridiculously vapid. Yeah, it's a joke. Um, Like, you can do the quiz. I'm sure literally everyone listening to this podcast can get it right on the first try. Like, can get 100% on the first try, no problem. Um, except, so, but in, in defense of, you know, the bureaucracy and civil servants, the people likely doing the actual GBA Plus analysis are argue, probably, arguably have more training and more uh, yeah. information in this area. It depends is, what their backgrounds are. But, yeah, but just to say that this is, you know, something the government has long been pushing at sort of a broad, holistic level within the civil servant. Right. Um, even at such a vapid... So I want to talk about a couple nuggets with budget sort of delivery. Uh, The first is why do they deliver it at four o'clock in the afternoon? God knows this is something I was asking myself as I I (laughs) proceeded to pass most of a relatively quiet day 
waiting for the budget details when I would then scramble for the next two hours to sort of get everything I needed together. Um, so why do they deliver it so late in the day? So let, let's go through the whole sort of budget day process very, very quickly. Something we did cover a little bit last year in uh, episode something, which was titled Lock Up Lowdown, which is actually a good episode. And you should listen to it. Yeah. So early in the day, there are budget lockups. And the budget lockups sort of vary based on... It's when all the political enemies of the government are rounded up. <laughs> 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 no, it is not that. The budget lockup is they be. put a whole bunch of people into a room. There are probably, I would speculate, about a dozen different budget lockups in Ottawa. Yeah, finance stakeholders, um, something, in, blah, including. Blah, blah, blah. I, I think there was a early morning lockup specifically for tax reform. Um, because of how complex it was, likely with all the accountants in it. I hope that everyone from CTF um, was sitting there all day. There, there was a media lockup for sure. There were stakeholder lockups. There's minister's office staff lockups. There's a lockup for opposition yes. staff. There's a lockup for civil servants. Like, take your pick. There's a lockup for, you know, yeah. dogs. There's a lockup for anyone who has any stake Podcast in Podcast interns. <laughs> so what, what the lockup is, is a few hours beforehand, you, you have to sort of get an invitation. Indeed. And you're invited by finance to come to the lockup. They take away all your um, telecommunication devices. You sit in a room. They give you a copy of the budget. If you're lucky, they pass you a USB key um, with a digital copy of the budget. And you yeah, can... I was wondering when you mentioned the control effing earlier there because I was like, do they actually get digital copies? But that answers my question. So, so this this is my because you you can bring in laptops and such. You just have to be sort of uh, on airplane mode, if you will. Correct. That is what they tell you. Um, having them not on airplane mode and you know cheating on budget you lockup is actually like a legal yeah. offense. You and will they, be killed. They occasionally threaten like RCMP is surveilling like the room. I don't know if the guy behind you, beside you, is like some sort of plain clothes RCMP guy. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of interesting details in this uh, <laughs> yeah. industry section. Eh? Your laptop's not on airplane mode. Get them. <laughs> Um, Just make small talk about like program spending throughout the day. Yeah, in previous years they'd hand out USB keys um, to everyone because USB keys are like you know forty cents now. But yes. at, at this one they were going around with like five, and you had to quickly copy it on and then like pass it around, hand yeah. hand it over to shareware budget. <laughs> Basically, I had one person put a virus on that USB key. Every, everyone, everyone in the room would be toast. <laughs> like all, all of Canada's reporters are. Ooh, just... Ooh, you could do that. Abs- I mean, I imagine the laptops aren't screened or anything. Absolutely so. toast. And huh. I mean, one of the things they always tell people, like IT experts, is like never put sort of a the USB like drive a communal yeah. USB drive in your computer. But that's that's beside the point. Um, so you're locked up there, and then there's a TV screen on, and as soon as the minister um, stands up. The minister stands up at 4 yeah. o'clock and begins delivering the budget speech. No, no one listens to it. I was frantically it. refreshing um, the uh, budget.gc.ca site. Yeah, because you already have a copy of it on the USB key. Um, everyone rushes to hit send and to, well, to get their cell phone or log on to the Wi-Fi network to forward their documents. Yeah. Uh, 4 o'clock is associated with the closing of the markets, being the financial markets. Yes. So that everyone sort of has overnight to digest it and the markets can respond accordingly in the morning and there's not... Um, a huge you know. run on whatever because someone misread something. Correct. Which could happen. Or they read it correctly. Who knows? Um, which brings to an, another important process point, which is a lot of people think ministers know a lot well, about you, the budget You beforehand. mentioned earlier there's a minister's office staff lockup, which yeah. I think speaks volumes right there. Yes. Ministers 
themselves, as well as ministers, office staff, generally know very little about the contents of the budget. They yeah. have some broad signals of, you know, this was positively received yeah. or what have you. But typically, they actually don't know all that much about the budget. Um, I, I think I talked about this in, in length last year. But our job uh, on Budget Day as a minister's office staff, uh, myself and another individual from my office, we went into lockup to look through the budget to find out what the hell was in the budget so yeah. that we could then run to Parliament, literally, it was a couple blocks away, and tell our minister what funding we got and what we didn't. And could to you brief not call him. the guy? You don't want to brief over the phone. And the idea in that particular context was he was then going to do telephone interviews. Ah, um, okay. So we sat in the room, gave him you know, the five, ten-minute briefing, and then he made phone call interviews talking about, you know, not only not only our department spending, yeah. but, you know, spending in his home province. And yeah, that sounds the, a lot. The general budget okay. thing. That sounds very similar to the process for any opposition MP. It's, it's effectively Especially the same. Especially if you're a critic, you just go through the critic area, you go through the riding, uh, or like region, yeah. and then you say that, and then the, the, the MP calls media and does all the interviews. That's, yeah. It's very, very similar. 100%. What people should read into is they should not read into, you know, ministers' actions the few days before budget, because they know next to nothing. Um, details are pre-leaked. Generally, they're pre-leaked by PMO and finance. Yes. Um, yeah, because the, the finance minister obviously does know what's in the budget. As do yeah. PMO, because yeah. they're PMO. Yeah, well, the prime minister, yeah. I, I take it for granted the prime minister knows. So there's a cabal between those two, but there is a very, very little information does available Treasury to ministers. Does no, no. Why, okay. why would you? Got to know they're often considered to be sort of one of the nerve centers, and they are a central, central agency, agency, but they do. they have to do more with spending. Oh, I like, knew we should get on the show sometime, Donald Savoie. That'd be sweet, <laughs> actually. That would be awesome, actually. Put, put that on the to do list. Yeah. Uh, who is an academic on this sorts of thing? Yeah. Uh, I, mean, any, I think anyone not def- familiar with Donald Savoie is he the one who coined the term governing from agen- the center? Well, governing from the center, agency. but central agency to refer to like that cluster of departments. I don't know. He I, he may have been. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, sorry. We're good. That's my bad. <laughs> sorry. Continue it. Yeah. Um. I mean that that's about it. I think just a lot of people would expect that a minister of the crown would know you know, what's coming down. Yes. And the reason this isn't done is because of sort of that stock market bit and yeah. the fact that, you know, people gossip. So perhaps and, people could, you know, do insider trading or other conflict of interest kind of things. Uh, yeah. And so you don't want the situation where, you know, questionable, like, oh, what did X minister know when yeah, they like, did this? Or what were they hinting at? You, it, you, it is, you brief cabinet or something, and then someone tells the parliamentary secretary, and suddenly you have a scandal on your hands when the parliamentary secretary for, like, sport is, like, doing, like, huge insider trading or something. <laughs> It'd be bad. It is. And this has happened before. I, I will remind, or not, not that it's happened, but it's been investigated before. Uh, if you want to look up Goodale and the RCMP, um, which is now the irony of Goodale being in charge, Ralph Indeed. Goodale being in charge of the RCMP, is when he was finance minister. Uh, under Paul Martin. Under Paul Martin. There were issues raised as to whether or not there was insider trading under his budget during the election campaign, nonetheless, and he Wolf. was eventually um, cleared of all sort of Which suspicion. Which is why he's a minister today. <laughs> uh, he was eventually cleared of all the suspicion, but at the time when this came out and was reported and X, Y, Z, during an election yeah. campaign. That's tough, eh? Because you got to like... That was you got to investigate, huge but blow. There is a presumption it's sort of, of like guilt. The, the Hillary, yeah, yeah, the, the emails. Hillary emails, the, FBI. The thing with politicians, the thing with politicians is that there is a presumption of guilt. Uh, like 
for on the part of the public all the time. And in fact, we talked about the other week in the context of the conflict of interest commissioner who said, like, I don't want to keep investigations confidential because whenever this stuff gets into the media, there is automatically a presumption that yeah. the person being investigated is guilty. Um, because, you know, there, there has to be a certain evidentiary basis to substantiate an investigation. So to some degree, I think that is like not unwarranted. But it goes a little far in some cases. I mean, this sort. I mean, the best example of this is in the uh, recent U.S. election with Comey's letter to. Woof! Yeah, that was bad. Congress and the issues around that. Yeah, um, that was really bad. Uh, we won't get too much into that because that's really not our beat at all. But yeah, no, that is a good point. Um, so I think that will that will sort of do it on the budget. We got a good good meaty half hour out of that, um, and we'll probably have you know comments later as the sort of ramifications of individual line items unfold. I want to talk a little bit about regional development agencies, and I, I won't have the time to go into that in too much detail. I will just say, referring to the Tetris graph uh, identified by Tian earlier, a lot of regional development agency programming is getting kind of um, consolidated. Like, they're reducing the number of programs offered uh, and sort of trying to turn them more into, like, you know, fewer, larger services offered by these agencies which isn't necessarily a bad idea though we will see where that ends up being for instance um it might affect different regions differently uh there's being sort of a declared emphasis on like uh, human capital and technology which for regions that are kind of behind on those things or that have you know resource intensive or manufacturing intensive industries uh, for instance, like Atlantic Canada or Northern Ontario, like those RDAs might lose out under this consolidation, which isn't great because kind of the point of these regional development agencies is kind of uh, equalize the economic playing field a little. So we will see what happens with that. I think uh, we like I'm going to withhold judgment until more details emerge, but that would be something to watch out for if you are a observer and follower of what happens in regional development. I'm, sh- I'm sure there's many listening. I actually find that to be one of the most fascinating things government does, but uh, I find it to be one of the least fascinating things. Yeah. So actually one word that has not really come out in this half hour that we spent talking about the budget is the word deficit. Why is that, Etienne? I thought that was the most important thing. I was actually thinking we forgot to mention the uh, billion-some-odd dollars for the uh, feminist foreign policy is oh. what, what I was just remembering. Um, because the But deficit first. <laughs> so what's going on with the deficit? Is this a big deal? Should we be worried? There's a deficit. There is a deficit. How much is the deficit? I think $16 billion. Yeah, $16 billion, you know, is not chump change. Um, there will be some graphs that show that, you know, our debt load is still reasonable. It's, it's going down, actually. Um, like, as a percentage of GDP, debt, yeah. Yeah, the debt-to-GDP ratio. And the idea of that is our economy is always growing. So if you were to, say, um, run $16 billion deficits... Indefinitely. Indefinitely, the jet debt to GDP ratio would shrink because our economy grows more than you know a, a stagnant yeah. um, deficit figure. Yes, I think there is something to be said about like we had ridiculously good economic growth this past year. Ridiculously good for the first three quarters. It slowed down a bit. That's I'm fine. just that's fine. Interesting it, it information. It was somewhere in the line of three to four percent. Yeah, which, which is phenomenally good for like. 21st century standards. As, as the liberal budget said, leading the G7, um, yes. take your pick. Like, fantastic, fantastic. Um, it's estimated to slow down. I think some people have pointed... It, it already is slowing down, as, well, I, as I mentioned. Yes, yeah. but lar- largely in the next few years yes. as well, to be, I just, to be more sluggish. This has already begun, is what I'm saying. Um, yes. And so I think there is something to be said about, you know, 
lean spending in good economic times to create fiscal space for future times. I'm a big proponent of that. Yeah. Um, I don't think, like, to, to look at the budget. Um, I think there are areas where, you know, the government could cut. And the government made no cuts in this budget, effectively. Mm-hmm. Like, none. Why? Yeah, there, I think that's, that's like, a reasonable analysis. I personally think, like, deficits are really not a big deal in like the, the capital B capital D way that a lot of conservatives do obviously exclamation mark yeah, yeah. Um, like Andrew Shear got I know we're still talking about the budget when I said we were done but this is actually kind of important uh, Andrew Shear got up you know in front of the House of Commons and said you know like this continues to have deficits and this is bad because deficits are bad it was more sophisticated than that they talked about you know debt servicing costs and intergenerational equality which is like I think those are the two most reasonable frames to talk about deficits compared to like, oh, I wouldn't run a deficit in my household. It's like, yeah, but you don't have your own dollars that people accept at the grocery store. So, Tan does, that is true. But most people don't. Um, So it is kind of a different situation. So, you know, as far as deficit hysteria goes, it's been fairly muted, uh, which is good because deficit hysteria is very stupid. And I'm glad to see that that's kind of dying a slow death. So... I will say deficits matter a lot more at the provincial level where you actually don't get to print your own money. I think I think the broader, I think I touched on this earlier, but the broader critique of the budget from a conservative perspective was responding to NAFTA and responding to what the United States are, is doing and the tax situation yeah, and so that's, a lot of other areas yeah. where this budget sort of just pretended a lot of those things weren't happening. Well, I can kind of see why because if you're a... You know, if you're talking about looking in the next couple of years in the future, it is not unimaginable that most of those tax incre- or, uh, cuts will be reversed. I think that's very, very easy to imagine a world that happens. That's at least three years from now. And sure. if you're having capital, one, one of the biggest but issues. But taxes, once cut, are hard to raise. In the context of the U.S., they have sort of the like political space for it, should there be like a big democratic wave. But it's, it's just creating that fiscal space for tax cuts maybe in future years maybe here maybe there um but like we're seeing numbers that were widely reported and statscan has borne this out um that uh foreign direct investment yeah is that's not surprising i I think ceos are talking about in nafta about moving production facilities to the united states to mitigate risk i think it is really not unwise for canada to sort of hold the line on this i think to cave to a totally unnecessary tax cut that was 100% about looting and 0% about actually stimulating growth in the U.S. is totally worth not racing to the bottom for. Um, Especially when there are decent odds that it will get reversed in the next couple of years. I don't think you have to race to the bottom. I don't think you have to... I, I think you more have to create an environment where you can effectively respond. I mean, look, and like, not Canada accounting has, for it at all is can, the wrong approach. I... If there was no prospect that these cuts would, you know, like change, I would agree. Even then, I would agree very grudgingly because I think like this is 100% responding to not at all rational economics, but just the interests as expressed through political capture of like the dominant economic class. But, you know, okay, in that situation, I could see the room. But especially when you're looking at possible reversal in the coming years, like I think it would be foolish to just jump down that rabbit hole. 
Okay, wait. I'm gonna I'm gonna cut it there. I'm not gonna respond for sake of keeping our agenda. Because I mean, we don't know. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. No, we so, we budgeted 20 minutes for the budget, yes. and yet we're at 40 we're here. At 40, so, so this is a, this we, is a we time need to, deficit. We need to get through a few more items. <laughs> this on is a this. time deficit. Our time, time debt is growing, Jen. <laughs> Who will pay our time debt? Uh, so the PC leadership is the yeah. So sorry, and we will see what happens with the tax cuts. But yeah, sorry. Uh, the PC leadership. Patrick Brown is now gone. He has and keeps getting murked in the media. The the sort of like crisis comms like planning they did in the case of sexual assault allegation or sexual harassment allegation came out, and like it has been a nonstop disaster for Patrick Brown even since he's left the leadership race. I feel like it's been months since he's we've talked kicked. about this. But he's getting just kicked been while down, and it's just great. So many things that have happened on the Patrick Brown developments in yeah. PC, and we won't bother leadership. going into everything on Patrick Brown. Cause suffice it to say, he is now gone. Uh, and good riddance to him. Uh, but who will actually win this leadership race, Etienne? I guess, um, oof. So if you look at the polling, uh, Main Street came out with some polling recently, and despite Main Street's, you know, recent track record on Indeed. polling, <laughs> and some of the scandals there. Oh, so sorry, Etienne is just having a good cough here, but... Um, let, let's take it at its word. And so the PC leadership is, uh, race is structured fairly comparably to the uh, conservative federal one. Um, so oh, is it a point system? It is a point I system. I didn't realize it's that. Okay. points and riding system. So it is fairly hard to gauge. Um, but what polling says is it says Doug Ford has an edge. Doug Ford is leading. Woo! Um, so there's that. I mean, that's that's a thing. Um, personally, I am leaning towards Christine Elliott. I think anyone who listens to this podcast would not be surprised by that. Um, having, you know, not even following this race very closely, I think that's really where my sort of thoughts and feelings are, uh, coalescing. Um, it's going to be tough. I think it's actually going to be a very close race. Um, there have been some fights, some apologies in the past few days. Um, at the end of it, I think it is important to note that uh, Elliot and, well, the Flaherty family has long been actually close with the Ford family. Yes, and as we were discussing, actually right before we started recording this, there was a noted, uh, very heated exchange that was described as almost coming to blows between Jim, the late Jim Flaherty and uh, the not-late Jason Kenney uh, on the floor of the house over uh, Jason Kenney's... Uh, sort of stated request that Rob Ford resign in the face of sort of his mounting scandals. Uh, Flaherty, you know, got in his face and, you know, they told each other to, to fuck off, fuck themselves, etc. Um, which was, you know, quite quite remarkable for the very, very, very disciplined Harper cabinet. And two very senior members of it. But certainly interesting context, um, sort of in positioning in sort of seeing how these attack ads play out and where they are in attacking each other and that they have long-standing friends. Yes. It's all, uh, it's all But I mean, if Laurent ever ran against me in a nomination, I'd, I'd tell you he's the worst person ever. And he, he Yeah, I would say Etienne is a bad communist and there's no reason he should be representing the communist party here. Um... Yeah, so that would be that would be good. So for for the sake of covering India, let's leave the PC leadership race at that. Can I just ask one quick question about the PCs? Go why, for it. Why not Moroni, Chan? Well, I mean, <laughs> I think she has been underwhelming as a candidate. I think that's a fair way to put it. If very nice, I think her digital comms has been horrendous. It's been a total dud. 
so um, far as a campaign. There was a great video of her <laughs> that, for whatever reason, they published and then deleted on social media. The hamburger one? The hamburger. <laughs> the hamburger video where she was like, like in the back of a minivan. The, the Italian buffet was too busy, so I picked up some McDonald's. Like, oof. I think the best way I saw it phrased was, hello, fellow poors. Yeah. <laughs> um, there have been a lot of sort of missteps by the Mulroney campaign in because terms of... they have no experience and clearly out of touch with how most people live. In Well, I mean, a lot of the people working on her campaign are sort of... Normal? Well, they're just, you know, standard uh, issue conservative campaigners mm-hmm. um, and backroom people. But the campaign just, for whatever reason, has not come together. It's not gained traction anywhere but likely through her personal network and fundraising. Yes. And she is, like, doing ridiculously well at fundraising and out yeah. fundraised, like, per capita... Or a per capita, not not per capita, terrible measure. I was going to say for the length of the race, yeah, and arguably the number of donors and everything else, the conservative, the bad. I, I would, I think it would not be an exaggeration to say anyone else in Canadian political history, um, especially coming out of nowhere politically, subject well, you know, to. Yeah. Subject to the restrictions that they are subject to, which yes. is like a you know a fifteen hundred dollar or something or twelve hundred dollar donation cap, thirteen thirty five, I believe, whatever it is. Um, so I mean, BC candidates maybe, but they can donate you know thirty forty thousand dollars. Yeah, uh, having Mulroney raise almost a million dollars in Alberta before the changes at twelve hundred dollars, thirteen whatever. Yeah. A it's pop a, is legitimately huge. impressive. Yeah, it's, it's legitimately absolutely impressive. huge. But she herself has been kind of a dud, uh, despite that. India. Uh, India. So, yeah, this has really continued. Uh, so we talked uh, two weeks ago about the India trip when it was still going on and before the sort of at-wall situation actually happened. So to recap that very quickly, there was a uh, high commission dinner in Mumbai, I believe, uh, where Jaspal Atwal, who is a convicted former attempted assassin, which is a hell of a phrase, of an Indian cabinet minister in 1985, who he tried to kill him with a gun while the guy was driving to Vancouver Island in 85. He was also uh, tried but not convicted of attempting to kill Ujjal Dosanjh, the former NDP premier of BC and then later federal liberal health minister. Before he was in either of those roles. Yes, before he was in either of those roles, but just in the same time frame. Uh, and this guy was invited to this dinner by uh, liberal backbencher Randeep Sarai, uh, who was chair of their BC caucus, or Pacific caucus, as they called it. Correct. Which is annoying, but there you go. Um, and so the government responded to this in two ways. First, they threw the backbench under the bus, saying, oh, he invited him, he shouldn't have, he's taken full responsibility, with no real indication of what full responsibility in that situation actually looked like. And second, they had the, and this is more really the relevant one, is they had National Security Intelligence Advisor Daniel Jean. Hey, look at you. You got yeah. all the letters. I did. I've been saying, I've been drilling this into people's heads for the last week. Um, Daniel Jean, who is a career public servant, works for PCO, a, not a partisan uh, minister's office or PMO employee. They get him to go up in front of the media, give a confidential <coughs> briefing alleging that rogue elements of the Indian security services were responsible for this in an attempt to make Canada look bad. Uh, since he's come, since Trudeau's come back from the trip, he's been asked repeatedly about this in the House and saying, like, well, both of these things, A, can't be true, and B, if there is a conspiracy by rogue elements of the Indian Security Services to make Canada look bad, 
he should present evidence of that confidentially to parliamentarians or you know the members of the opposition so that people My, can... minor correction i, Go I do not believe the claim was security service i believe it was as broad as the government okay sure okay fine i will accept that just, correction. Just a, it, it, is a, <laughs> it is a petty but significant um... i will i will accept the correction but the point remains that basically he's been asked to put up or shut up in confidence so let me play devil's advocate here. Go and ahead. this is, I think Iveson had a piece that roughly said this. Um, so for context, Daniel Jean, as you said, NSIA, uh, works for PCO. Privy Council office. I, I'm guilty of this too, so. Uh, works for PCO. And he gave a briefing to journalists on background, uh, which is to say that. We it, discussed this. It, it, sh- it shouldn't have been attributed to him. <laughs> yeah. Um, and told them, you know, everything that's been reported. Um, Iveson has a piece where he sort of makes the defense saying that, you know, these two stories aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. That Jean's comments were perhaps more broad than some people reported. Sure. Um, that perhaps he said um, the government or people within the government inflamed the... Uh, response to the Trudeau story. And, yeah. and that's what it was. Yeah. Which, granted... That seems plausible? It seems very plausible. And if that is all he was intending, that's fine. But they should clarify that. Right? They, instead, they've kind of doubled down on it. They've been asked, like, you know, like, is this true? And he's been said, we believe the public service and we think they do great work. So it's like, there's been no attempt to clarify if that's actually the case. More significant isn't there's the clarification getting into like clarification days afterwards becomes like if you're explaining you're losing sort of thing sure but it's less losing than this fair um but the other problem with it is daniel jean's role in this entire thing the nsia is typically a very very hard person typically would not brief the media the fact that he came to be briefing the media on background, yeah. here, here's my hypothetical situation that I would pitch. PMO Issues is sitting around spitballing ideas, and they have a briefing with their officials. And their officials come up, and, you know, Jean is there with a couple people on his left and people on his right, and they say, like, how did this happen? Like, what's going on? And Jean says something along the lines of, well, you know, within the Indian government, there's people that want to see us fail they want to inflame tensions they want to do xyz and pmo turns to him and says can you tell media that he says "Uh, i i hope he equivocated a little bit said maybe not my role and they said you should really tell media that and eventually he relented yeah and agreed to do uh of course this is all speculation but agreed to do the briefing and at the briefing he said these things and the media took it out of context slightly but at the end of the day, what he was doing was he was providing a counter-narrative political counter-narrative yeah. counter for the government yeah. in an area where it looked like he was covering for the responsibility of partisan members of the government. And also, like, he Namely, Randeep Sarai. Putting the credibility of the public service on the line when you do this. Which is the first thing Trudeau did in defense of Daniel Jean said... Yeah. If, the conservatives if, used to do this all the time. If, for... the, if the NSA says it, or the NSIA says it, it must be true. Yeah. 
um, and then accusing stop, conservatives of having often torqued the, the public service. Yeah, so it, it's interesting to go back and look at the example of Fadden and Fadden's uh, comments about China. Who give, what's uh, this? Dick Fadden or Richard Fadden, who was at the time uh, director of CSIS. And he flagged concerns about uh, Chinese influence within liberal cabinet ministers. Later came to be, uh, later came, these people, individuals came to be named um, as individuals within the Ontario Liberal um, right. cabinet. Yeah. And the, there was the whole back and forth, and the Ontario Liberals basically just dismissed the concerns of, you know, the National Security Intelligence Agency, or yeah. our, our National Security Intelligence Agency. Yes. Um, so there's the whole them, being hypocrites here, but what's what's really significant here is that Daniel Jean should have never been put in this situation. Right. He never should have agreed to it. Public servants should never take a bullet for partisans. Um, ever. Like, uh, you're doing it absolutely wrong if you're doing that. So let's shift this conversation to now talk about process. For sure. So Jean got called out um, by the opposition, and so that's when this really blew up. And so the opposition have made several moves to yeah. try and get Jean on record because typically the NSIA is not someone who would testify before a House committee. Right. Like in, in the slightest. Sure. Um, so at SECU, which is the Standing Committee on you know Security, Security and Defense, I, I never remember what they stand for, um, there was a conservative motion put forward to call Daniel Jean to testify. Right. And uh, the Liberals voted it down. And then, it, actually, there was two. Yeah, and I was going to say that. But. In uh, the Senate, there's SECTI, um, where the conservative senators did effectively the same thing. And the independent senators voted it down, uh, arguing that, you know, this wasn't the role of calling officials to testify. Which is actually pretty interesting because... Um, officials, as I've talked before, often appear at committee. Right. Um, they often appear to yeah, defend so what's their so departments. Special, what's so special about this guy? Is it just that he has like class? Most of his stuff he's dealing with is classified. So like. So certainly this, and this comes up in Goodale's infamous scrum, the the nine minute scrum, where Goodale is. It was, you have to watch this video, by the way. So Goodale was testifying at SECU on uh, supplementary estimate C, I think. Um, which is usually about, you know, financial, it's usually an incredibly boring um, committee testimony where the minister defends minors for spending in his department. Yeah. Um, but what it became was it became a circus about the India trip. This happens. Um, and so afterwards, Goodale made the decision or was effectively forced to scrum by the media. And it resulted in a nine-minute scrum with him running away and... Uh, Randeep Sarai getting into it. And... <laughs> yeah, he just randomly turned the corner and was there. Like, it seemed to be <laughs> yeah. just pure coincidence. The worst, but, like, the worst timing. Bad timing. <laughs> yeah. The worst timing in the world. Yeah. And, and the scrum is sort of infamous uh, now and has been spread widely on so- social media. Because he just gave nonsensical non-answers so, to like, perfectly reasonable questions. So let me let me put the thrust of what Goodale was saying. And, and to Goodale's credit, he is one of the most senior, most experienced, and most trustworthy um, ministers in the liberal benches. And Goodale's point was, you know, we could take the NSIA and bring him to committee, um, bring him to unclassified committee, SECU, and he wouldn't be able to say much. Mm-hmm. It would be a political fight. It wouldn't, he would not be able... Which is why the opposition wants it. They want would, the cameras. He they would want the not politics. be able to reveal 
yeah. um, details, the you know, the intelligence or any, any of the background here that resulted in that comment. And the media said, yeah. well, why can't you tell us? I mean, yeah. he, he briefed us. Why can't he brief? Well, that was kind of the, the real weakness here was that he had done this. Correct. Already, right? So it, I would understand that explanation if it had not literally already happened, right? Like that was the real, real weakness there. It made him look not very credible. Yes, and, yeah. and that's the problem. So, and so Goodale took it and he said, well, we have a forum for this. Yes. It's NSI, NSI call. The National Security Something Committee of Parliamentarians? Intelligence. Intelligence. Okay. I, I think so, it's National Security and Intelligence and Committee the, of Parliamentarians. The NDP asked for a confidential briefing, which I guess would probably be through this forum uh, instead of asking for a public one, because I think, you know, understanding the sensitivity here, it's like we, I think it's people want to know, like, Put it up or shut up. Like, is this bullshit? If it is, we will continue asking about it. If it's not, we will shut up. Right? Like, it's... People want the air cleared. So, the thing is, if... At the end of the day, if... um, Daniel Jean's comments were based on something as broad as, you know, people within the Indian government being, you know, an expansive organization, um, or Indian governments, be it provincial, regional, take your pick, right? right? Um, There are people there looking to inflame the tensions. Sure. This... Like, I believe that I could probably find evidence of that myself with a quick Google search, right? Mm-hmm. And so if that is the thrust of it, it's also interesting that, or I, I mean, maybe there is intelligence. I, like, who knows? Like, I, I have absolutely no idea. Daniel Jean presumably knows. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is it, right? Like, people want to, like, just so, clear the air. So let, let's talk about NSI call. NSI call. So what... Their reporting mechanism politically is very unsatisfying. Yes. They report, uh, they produce a report that is then cleared by PMO and published once a year sort of deal. Mm -hmm. And so the reason why the opposition is not content with that is because it puts it into a very, not only does it basically politically sanitize it. Yeah. um, it's, It's fine to sanitize from, you know, pertinent information. Um, but and then it delays it till I don't I don't know what time of year because the report has never been released when this report could ever be expected, mm-hmm. and no one's going to care about this five months from now. Right. So they want something quicker. So there's there's the politically salient aspect of this. Yeah. And so I do think it is imminently reasonable for a senior official to be called to committee to defend their public with brackets so yeah. on background comments to reporters it's still two media yeah so yeah, it's, I, it is public I, I consider it public and when i yeah, say public I, I mean like non-confidential sure um non-classified so, non-classified with, yeah. with the intent of this being reported i think he should be held responsible for those statements and i think that is something reasonable for mps to delve into in a public forum yes even if it's in camera frankly i think basically what people want you know, okay, partisan circus aside, I think people who genuinely want, like, answers on this would be content with someone coming to a caucus meeting or something and saying, like, yes, this is bullshit, or no, this is not bullshit, and we should shut up about it. Like, I think that would, I, like, I'd be happy with that. So, we, we haven't actually seen much about how NSI COP works. It's, um, a, it's a fairly new thing. It, it's it's effectively, brand new, it's effectively yeah. brand new, and ever since I actually haven't heard anything about it since about uh, five months ago, maybe when the composition of the committee was announced, mm-hmm. um, and so it's it's sort of untested. Yes, um, and notably, uh, partisan staff are not allowed to like see documents or basically staff their MPs on this, which is unusual. 
It is unusual. Ah. Uh, I mean, there's no other committee where you well, don't that, get Well, that's to... the thing, though. It's not a committee of parliament. Right. Is, is one of, like... It's the... committee of parliamentarians. Yes, that is... It is an important difference. That is sort of the nuance here, is yes. that it is not a committee of parliament. It is a committee of people... That said, who are parliament. It's members yeah. of parliament and senators. They are briefed by public servants, which is all well and good, but sort of the, the role that partisan staff play is sort of as an outbrain for their, their members often. In the sense that you are, you you look for information that you think will be valent to your member or minister. Funny, this is, I, I, I know like, you've gotten into I, this I feel argument like before. This is my argument. <laughs> I agree with you. Like I don't, I don't agree at all. I think partisan staff are valuable. Okay, so here's here's the the pushback, the counter argument. Um, well, the counter argument is like they don't know what they're, they they're doing and they don't have anything to add, which I think you could say the exact same for parliamentarians. It's just a, like added function of like scrutiny of documents and more preparation and politically valent preparation on the part of parliamentarians it also so the side i think that would most readily be quoted is not those it's risk oh yeah yeah sure um the access this committee and these committee members get is at the highest level it's top secret right Yes, yeah. but within that, there are nuances, and this is at the highest levels. Okay. Top Secret has, like, tiers within sure. it um, based on, you know, need to know, based on uh, human intelligence versus signal intelligence. signal intelligence. And they sort of separate out this pie so that any individual sees the most limited or that most yeah, yeah. individuals see the most limited slice of the pie possible. Yeah. And the idea for this committee to do its job is to be able to see the whole pie. Yeah. Um, so this this is the pushback is having, you know, more political actors, um, backroom political actors having a bigger slice of the pie is perhaps problematic. I don't... Uh, I mean, if they're cleared, they're cleared. I don't support that argument. Uh, they're clear, they're clear, but there's also a risk. The more people you yeah. you introduce, the more risk you yeah. introduce. Um, but from my perspective, within the Liberal Party, these people already exist. Within the Conservative Party, they exist. And so if you have one person <laughs> for the Liberals, one person for the Conservatives, just like it's former ministerial office staffers and take your pick, right? Um, within the NDP, there's no one. Um, but I'm not saying, you know... Uh, oh, you mean people have been in government? Okay, yeah, see, yeah. That, that's that's what I'm saying. So people who have been in government who have been trusted with this sort of information gotcha. before. Okay, and so two two of three. I mean, I don't think we're giving anyone from the Green Party this access. <laughs> um, so it, what it would effectively mean is it would mean reclearing a a like a single conservative staffer. Um, and then re- or clearing for the first time an NDP staffer. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that is fundamentally unreasonable. I think that might result in a lot more uh, utility from the committee, yeah, where the good committee scrutiny. is able yeah. to use a more partisan lens and have more research hours from a partisan perspective, which I think is useful. Yeah, in the we, intelligence, we have theory. a tendency in the sort of public debate to sort of say partisan equals bad. Partisan is is what it is, but like. Politics in this country is fundamentally partisan, so if you want to have MPs to have an informed take on things, giving them capacity is not a terrible thing. So when you look at the criticisms that you know NDP MPs versus conservative MPs are going to make having access to yeah, all these documents... very different criticisms often. They're going to have very different criticisms. And so if they are briefed on hundreds of pages of documents by civil servants yeah. who all have security backgrounds themselves... Yeah. It's likely to be less interesting and less politically salient yeah. 
than having actual political staff yeah. and fundamentally, go through right, like, the hard copies of the document. Lest it be forgotten here, the job of the opposition is to scrutinize the government, and if they're getting briefed by the government on things, then that is sort of like, it complicates that task, right? It, it does like, a little bit. I think the structure of it is made to be somewhat of like that. an outside of government, sort of like yeah. the auditor general, a secretariat. Yeah. Um, but fundamentally having uh, people... Th- so a lot of people think that civil servants, having worked in the government, have a reasonable grasp of political dynamics. I'm shaking my head furiously. They do not. It, it could not be further from the yeah. truth. They they do not come from a political environment at all. Most of them, like it, it really bears saying, like the National Capital Region has two universities. The public service is, like, officially bilingual, so there is an overwhelming amount of people from Quebec and Franco-Ontarians. Like, it's... The public service generally comes from a fairly narrow window of society and comes with all the attendant sort of, like, biases and weaknesses that having a fairly narrowly staffed and cultured public service entails, or any institution. Um, So it really comes from a point of view uh, that typically tends to be fairly... The government knows what it's doing and should be trusted to run things on a day-to-day basis and don't bother me too much with this. And that is what it is. Uh, But there's like, this is why having scrutiny from a broader pool of people is often a good thing. So (laughs) are we in agreement on that? So yes, but I I would also say that like public servants having, you know, friends who do it and... Uh, having, having yourself work, done it having, time to time. <laughs> yes, and having worked among them, um, their political lens is effectively non-existent except at the highest levels. Yeah. Um, so when you apply that to, you know, memos and briefing on... So say you get, you know, 200 pages of documents back and you have a political staff look through it versus having a civil servant look back, uh, look through it and summarize it. What you're having is a completely different lens applied. Yeah. It's going to poke holes in it in completely different ways. Yeah, 100%. So in, you know, in many instances, it is good to have um, civil servants who have background in uh, national security and intelligence look through it and sort of flag things. Um, but say an NDP partisan who looks through it might find issues with, you know, the treatment of an individual. Sure that a civil servant who's long served in the field or worked for the RCMP before or take your pick might not, you know, yeah. flag so I think, any concerns I think it's fair with. to say that, like, civil liberties are not at the top of most security agencies, like, you know, list of priorities. I would disagree. That's fair, but I would disagree with you. Uh, <laughs> that is too broad a topic to really breach right <laughs> now because we're already at over an hour, but we can talk about that another time. I would be interested in having this conversation in more depth. Um, so for people who say we never disagree, you got us this time. <laughs> we just don't have the time to disagree. Uh, and I think that'll wrap us up for this week, actually. So, yeah, let, let's summarize this all into one fine point. Um, in the NSI cop, so the answer is this mechanism does exist yeah. to look into this sort of thing. But because of the way this was approached, because it was public facing and public focused yeah i think it merits a public forum in a way that other classified sort of yeah cases perhaps may not sure. whether it's the you know the rendition of a terrorist or peace bonds or take your pick of other national security issues i think those are perhaps more fitting forums than when a member of the intelligence community 
muddles into pol- yes. very, very political That topics. was kind of the original sin here, apart from inviting the guy to a dinner in the first place. Yes. So two original sins, which I guess that doesn't really work as a metaphor, but there you go. <laughs> yes. So beer reviews this week. We had two. Uh, the first was Lightning Field from Dominion City, which is a dry hopped kettle sour. Uh, comes in a very attractive white can with uh, Dominion's classic minimalist branding. It's described as beer is bright, tropical, and tart with pronounced papaya, pink grapefruit, and yuzu hop aromatics, in assessment I broadly agree with. It's very similar to their previous dry hopped kettle sour, peace order, and good government. I found it to be more tropical in flavor, and I'm actually just reading this description for the first time, <laughs> and that fits the discussion we were having before we started recording. So it's very good if you like any sort of like... Um, sort of Dominion City Sunsplit or a sip of sunshine from the brewery in Vermont you like a lot. I forget the name. Um, at any rate, very uh, mosaic hopped. Is it mo- Citra hop. I'm no, sorry. you can't. Citra hopped uh, IPAs. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, there's several hops. Yes. Okay. So at any rate, tropical note hops. Sure. Uh, if you like those kinds of beers, this would be right up your street. I found it very good. And of course, the sour notes, uh, from being a sour, are, are lovely. So, highly recommend. We also had one of Etienne's favorite beers in the world, Pêche Mortel from Dieu Brewery in Quebec. Montreal. Montreal. Montreal okay. specifically. Uh, Imperial Coffee Stout. In, I see. I, I, if any devoted listeners of this podcast see a pattern with Etienne's choice of beers, you are absolutely right. Etienne lives on stouts. <laughs> it is all, all he eats and drinks. So two, um, fun, two fun facts about this one. One, it is not widely sold, if at all, in Ontario. I had to cross the border into Quebec to purchase it. And at Brouhaha. At Brouhaha. A lovely beer store in Gatineau, if you a, a chance. A beer specialty store. And then bring it across the border. I don't know if I've just... Broken a lot. committing a crime or not. No, I think there are still personal importation limits that apply for... Yeah, you brought like um, six bottles maybe? Whatever what my limit was, less than that. Yeah. Um, uh, fantastic. I, I think it is worth noting on the 24th of March. Um, it is such a good beer that there's an international day where they ship it all across the world and in every major city in Canada. Um, and they have up to between 7 and 14 different versions of it at pubs across oh, wow. in every major city. Thanks, we'll go to that. Um, so they have like a milk stout version, a raspberry version, a uh, barrel, like bourbon barrel aged one. Um, so if you look up on the Zero Cell website, you will be able to find uh, an event presumably near you unless Hopefully. you live in some rural rural area every major city has one i i liked it i think i like it less than you but i think this is really like your type of beer and not as much mine i like stouts just fine but i don't think i like them as much as you do you're wrong i am right that i like them less than you it's the best beer okay it it was good i'd recommend it i think tan would recommend it very very highly top five beer in canada for sure did did we do that? Yeah, we did the Duchesse de Bulgogne review. Yes, we did. Yeah, that was brutal. Sorry, I just had flashbacks from that. Anyway, that'll do it for us this week. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, at ShortPantsPod. Uh, you can also listen to our back catalog, which is great. We had a great interview with Angela McEwen of the CLC last week uh, about sort of a broad variety of economics topics and free trade. It was great. Uh, before that, we had another good one about procurement and some other fun stuff uh, about wood. Why are you making our longest episode longer? Yeah, sorry. Okay, that'll do for us this week. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Bye-bye!